Welcome to the Liberty Experts Podcast, where all your liberty questions are answered, discussed, and debated by experts. Now, here are your liberty experts, Tim Moen and David Birnbaum. All right, guys, I am here today with Angela McArdle. Angela is the uh, chairperson for the LA County Libertarian Party, and uh, she's running for chair of the National Party. So she's basically running for uh, the equivalent to my position, I guess, in a, in a way, right, Angela? is that, First of all, welcome. Welcome from Canada. I guess you're in upstate New York. I was hoping you were going to be in California so I could get some sunshine by proxy and kind of feel jealous, but uh, you're probably experiencing about the same temp as me. But did I get, did I get that right? Uh, what did I miss, Angela? Yeah, that's about right. I chair LA County. I am also on the executive committee for the California party. In the United States, we have a county, state, and national level party, and I am running for the chairmanship of the national party in 2022. And right. I am in the crazy cold weather of upstate New York right now, vacationing from one, uh, you know, communist state to the yeah, other. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, it seems like uh, California and New York have the heaviest hand when it comes to this COVID stuff. Uh, seems like you're a glutton for punishment, or are those just the best states other than the government. I am here visiting my boyfriend's family with him, oh. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. It's well, I, I know uh, I want to get into your background a little bit. I know you grew up in a conservative Christian household, similar to me. And, you know, my mom always taught me to go preach at the gates of hell. So I guess you're, you're doing that. You're at the gates of hell going oh, from yeah. one gate of hell to the next. So, oh uh, yeah, I can't, I can't help myself. I've really just got to put myself in the worst possible political situation and get on my megaphone and go to work. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, let's let's let me find out a little bit about you. What you are? Uh, every, what what was your come to liberty moment? How did you get uh, realize you're a libertarian or become a libertarian? Oh, it was sort of like an act. It, it was like three acts in a play. You know, the first one was pretty boring. I just had a conversation with someone who told me that I sounded more libertarian than conservative when I said that I, you know, was a Republican but didn't care about the drug war or gay marriage, you know, I, I thought those were right. probably stupid things to obsess over. And he said, well, you sound more like a libertarian than a conservative. And I thought, okay, cool. Like that sounds cool too. Right. And like guns and stuff. So yeah. I thought, great, you know, as a teenager, I'm a libertarian. And then I read this book called the creature from Jekyll Island mm. by G. Edward Griffith. And yeah it really imploded my worldview. And I became really interested in uh, how financial policy shapes the United States and how it also impacts freedom. And I just thought, oh, everything is a lie that I know. This is just terrible. I hate the government. I, it got me way more interested in libertarianism from an economics and like central planning perspective. And then, you know, the third awakening was when Ron Paul ran for office. Mm, yeah. And that really like, everything that I had read about central banking, I, I was like, wow, like I'm not a crazy person. It's not just something I read in a book. Here we've got this, you know, quote unquote politician talking about it and everything he's saying makes sense. And he's a libertarian. And so I just, right. you know, that's now, what, were, that's were you like, in. were you like me? Cause I, I went through, you know, a similar type thing. I, some people put bugs in my ear. I was actually going through a period where I was kind of, uh, questioning that the religion I was raised in as a, you know, the fundamentalist kind of Christian 
uh, beliefs that I had been kind of imposed on me. And, um, you know, I came across famous atheists like Ayn Rand and, and Penn Jillette, and uh, they were talking about uh, political theory as well, and, and libertarianism. And, you know, immediately upon hearing this, I wanted to jump into politics. But then, then, you know, within a few months, I was in ANCAP, and I was like, oh, well, politics is antithetical to the world I want to live in. And I'm basically encouraging the bastards by getting involved in politics. So I poo-pooed politics for years. And, and then it was someone from a libertarian party that reached out to me. And they spent probably three months trying to convince me. And they kept bringing up Ron Paul. And they said, look, this message is important to you, Tim. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you stand on that political stage where the spotlight is and where the crowd's facing and and preach the gospel you care about? And, um, you know, what, what, what? it doesn't have cooties. Why don't you go just stand up there? It's, there's an open inv invite. And I couldn't turn them down. And, and um, as soon as I committed, I was uh, thrown into a by-election within two days. And, and within two months, I had found myself leading the party and running for prime minister. So I'd written an article about uh, how voting and political action was probably immoral uh, six months before I found myself running for prime minister. Um, did you have a period like that where you were very against politics and, and kind of at arm's length? How did you get involved with the Libertarian Party? Oh, yeah, I had a very similar experience. I mean, after, after seeing what happened with Ron Paul and, you know, my views on central banking and how evil the whole institution is, politics, you know, the, the financial sector that's tied to politics, I thought, sure, I'm a libertarian, but I'm never going to get involved in that stuff. That stuff is evil. It's the pathway to hell. You can't fix anything. It's not good. Just stay away. And I started going to libertarian meetups, which I like to do because you want to hang out with other like-minded people. And thought, well, I mean, you know, I'm really more of an anarchist. I'm a libertarian, but I just don't do, you know, official politics. But someone, our our former state chair, Ted Brown, wrote to me into running for Congress in my district in a special election. So that means mm. no one else is running. I was running to fill a vacancy. And the first right. time he asked me, I said no. And the second time he asked me, I was like, absolutely not. And then the third time I said, okay, fine. And <laughs> wow, that sounds exactly like my mind was a, basically a special election too, as a by-election. So we were the only election going on in Canada at the time. And so, you know, I threw all sorts of memes at the wall. And the one that yeah. stuck was, I want gay married couples to protect their marijuana plants with guns. That went around the world, got me on Fox News, CNN, and, and uh, you know, the rest is just kind of catapulted me into um, the spotlight and, and into the leader position that I, you know, so uh, very interesting, very similar uh, type of uh, path. Um, and, and so how long have you been involved with the Libertarian Party? Um, in California, since 2016. Okay. I was going to say, I think I spoke at the California Party back in 2015. 15. So um, yeah, that's probably what I don't know if you were there then. Um, that was around the time when uh, I think uh, it was Austin Peterson, uh, Gary Johnson, Mark Allen Feldman, and those that crew was debating there um, on stage. So uh, and, and so 2016, and you've run for Congress, and you've how long have you been chair of the, the county LP? I've been chair of the county LP now for I believe about two and a half years. Okay, and how does how does it work there? Is there separate parties at the state and county levels? Are they separate organizations, or is it all kind of on one umbrella organization? You mean for the LP or for yeah. the? Uh, so, you have the national level party. 
and then you have the state level parties and within the states you have county affiliates so our okay. membership our membership as far as our our government is concerned is one and the same but our activism our membership within the party is different uh voting and you know things like that within the party is different it's all separated sort of at the county level Right, right. Okay. And different states, different states, by the way, uh, organize themselves a little bit differently. So there are some states with less libertarians, and they'll go by region instead of county. Okay. And but you you in the US, you have party affiliation as well when you run for municipal elections. Is that right? Yes, like, but not okay. always. It really not always. depends. Okay. Oh, it really the answer depends. is... <laughs> Yeah. The answer is it depends. So there are some some states that allow you to have party affiliation at the local level and some states where obviously you campaign however you want, but they're not going to have a letter next to your name. Right, right. And I, I think I met, uh, is it Hugh Hewitt? Or, yes, Jeff Hewitt. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he he was a municipal, he ran, was it a municipal level that he won as a libertarian or? County level. County, right. So some people will say it's the same, a slight distinction. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember trying to get a, um, trying to butter him up and get a job as a libertarian fire chief in his county. See if right. you could help me out with that. Um, right. So, uh, I mean, that, that's very different than Canada. We have separate, we do have separate libertarian provincial parties. We only have two uh, provincial libertarian parties, uh, BC and Ontario, and then we have the national party, but uh, our, our municipal and city politicians don't have don't generally declare any party affiliation at all they're just uh, completely independent so that's a little bit different mm. um okay so you you decided to enter the race now you're, you're running for the big show you're running for chair of the u.s libertarian party um i moderated the bit the debate a, a few years ago with robin kerner at the the national convention um and I remember there was a guy on stage, there, there was Joshua Smith, I remember, uh, Nick Sarwark, and then there was this guy, I think his name was Matt Kewell or something like that. And he, yeah. he stood on stage and said, rent is theft and uh, got booed very loudly. Um, I, I'm taking it, you're not uh, running as a rent, rent is theft kind of candidate, you're, uh, you're a little bit different. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it seems like... Um, I mean, that would be unheard of in Canada, I think. I don't think we would ever attract that. Is is the Libertarian Party in the U.S. fairly big tent that way? or? Well, I would say that it's a problem within the within the party that we've got a cultural issue. I don't necessarily right. know if I call that a big, big tent issue. Right. Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, you know, it seemed, well, maybe to tell, tell me a little bit about why you are my audience. I, I've heard you on uh, Pete Canones and, and Tom Woods. Uh, so I, I think I have a pretty good idea, but maybe explain to my audience up here in Canada why you're, what inspired you to run for, for chair of the party. Sure. So I'm sure that Canadians are familiar with all of the lockdown mandates that are being issued all across the globe, really, but especially here in North America, I think we've probably encountered some similar challenges. I am running for national chair because of the national level party's absolute failure to rebuke the lockdowns. That has inspired me to run. Uh, in addition to that, sort of related to that, I'm running because I want to see our party put liberty at the forefront of our messaging again. And I want the Libertarian Party to become a more welcoming place for libertarians all of those things are sort of related to the cultural problem that I think our party has and that you sort of saw 
when you came down and moderated a very embarrassing debate between uh, two libertarians and a communist, that was no good. So I'd like to see us, uh, I'd like to see us not have that sort of nonsense in the future and to care a little bit more about liberty and foster a culture that really embraces it and cares about it deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there has been a lot of mixed messaging from libertarians, it seems, on these lockdowns. Um, I, I got into it with a guy, I think he, he's from the US. I don't know if he's part of the LP, Matt Zwolinski. I think he's a bleeding heart libertarian. And, you know, he said lots of, he tweeted out lots of libertarians believe that lockdowns are immoral restrictions of liberty, check, and unnecessary because COVID has a relatively low fatality rate, check. Uh, question, how high would the fatality rate have to be before some form of lockdown was permissible? 5%, 10%, is there any number? Um, I, I said, well, they're, they're morally even at 100% fatality rate. Now you answer the question, lots of libertarians and air quotes believe that lockdowns are moral restrictions of liberty and necessary because COVID has a relatively high fatality rate. How low would the fatality rate have to be before you would consider lifting the lockdown? But I just thought it was interesting to see the, the different way uh, libertarians kind of look at this question of COVID. I, I don't know if it speaks to a bigger kind of divide, but one of the things I've noticed as leader of the Libertarian Party up here in Canada is that there does seem to be two camps, um, you could call it left and right. I don't know if that's the, the yep. most apt term uh, to describe them, but it does seem like oil and water or something like that. Like they, they, ha they have a really hard time uh, seeing things from the, through the same lens and, and coming together. Um, and, you know, I, I see it, you know, for example, the, the crowd that likes to go out in March and gay pride parades uh, quite often gets chastised by, by people who go to, to gun rallies and different things like that. And, you know, there, there's this bickering back and forth. Um, how, how do you think you solve that problem? Or is that a problem? Or do you, do you just kind of stick to hardcore libertarian principles and let things kind of sort themselves out? Well, I think the cultural problem within the LP is more about attitudes than actually about lifestyles. So I know some sex workers, I know some transgender people who do not consider themselves like the far left of the party because right. they're also very anti-lockdown. You know, they really do believe in live and let live. They believe in personal liberty and they don't really identify with the people who do drag queen story hour or maybe the people who put that at the forefront of their messaging. I think that libertarians who are like, sure, I'm transgender, I, I do sex work, or oh, I care a whole lot about poor people, or I live sort of in a commune. I don't think that those people are automatically like to the left, maybe their lifestyle is, but their attitude, if it's libertarian, you know, like, that's what I care about. Like, do you care right. about letting me go out and live my life and make a livelihood so I can support myself and not be poor and on government welfare? When there's this pandemic you know or, or lockdown happening and if they say like yeah i want you to be able to do that cool we're on the same team and i think that if we if we put liberty at the forefront of our messaging and we have really solid principled messaging done you know by people who are good messengers then i think that we're going to see people start to coalesce around that and the people who don't care about that whether they're republican light democrat soft whatever you want to call them they're going to either start to understand it and get it, or they're gonna fall away a little bit. And I think that that's okay. I think that our party, as far as voting goes, can be big tent. But when I think about leadership and the people who are in charge of messaging, I think we need to curate our, uh, our leaders and our messengers a little bit more carefully, and that, that will help to shape the party. Part of that also though, I think is not having people who are divisive and fighting and talking about kicking people out. 
because then you do yeah. see, you know, you do see warring factions within the party. So I'm not going to pander to people's like special interests within the party. Sure. If you, you want me to put, you know, like drag queen rights at the top of the party, I'm not going to do it. I'm also not going to talk about exalting, you know, fundamentalist, you know, quiver full of 12 children on your homestead. You know, they don't need to be at the top either. Like right. freedom should be at the top fighting against the lockdowns. Do whatever you want in your personal life, but stop trying to make our party about like what you do in your private life. That's not how it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I have been um, very attentive to what goes on south of the border because as leader, I want to know what works and, you know, and I'm never quite sure exactly sure. what works, right? And, you know, when I first became leader, we ran a fairly... Um, a, a, a platform that I wasn't necessarily a big fan of, but I had a lot of advisors come out of the woodworks as soon as I took leadership that were very cocksure that that we have to have a very pragmatic, uh, incrementalist approach here to messaging. And so we had like a 15% flat tax and things that, um, you know, and the way I justified it in my mind is, well, what could we reasonably accomplish in four years uh, of government and okay that, that was kind of how i justified it in my mind but that was weak sauce and uh, you know I, I realize that now and as soon as i said no look I, I can't do this anymore i have to stick to just hardcore libertarianism and and abandon this stuff it, those guys kind of left in a huff mm -hmm. um but I notice that, um, you know, that there's always kind of this temptation to, to want to please people. And I think I saw it a little bit in um, the LP this past year with uh, Joe and Spike's campaign and, and Party Central, some of the messaging coming out um, was a little soft and they kind of adopted some of the language of the left. Uh, you know, anti-racism, and they seem to be very intent on attracting votes or support from BLM. Uh, it didn't seem to pan out all that well. Um, what What are your thoughts about messaging um, going forward with the Libertarian sure. Party? Well, I think that we need to message first and foremost to the people who are most likely to vote for us. Uh, right. and, and I think that I'm not sure why this is such a controversial concept. I don't have any problem with saying that Black people's lives matter. Obviously, right. they do. But... Let's look at the context of when it was said, specifically to the United States Libertarian Party. You've got a former chair who has been antagonistic towards people who consider themselves right libertarian or just who reject identity politics for almost six years. And then right on the heels of that, you have a presidential candidate tweeting out stuff that some people in the party are very sensitive to and don't like because they think that it's id poll pandering and they think that it's Marxist terminology. Do I think Joe Jorgensen's a Marxist? Of course not. She's like a really good libertarian. But mm -hmm. unless you set up the framework for messaging that reaches across the aisles, like your, your messaging that reaches across like that is going to die because you're, you're skipping right over all of the people who are interested in you because they're sick of maybe what you're messaging about. So right. there were people who, who hated identity politics and they were like, I'm sick of like the people who I would say are center left. They've been rejected by their, by their party and the people within the democratic and leftist institutions, but they're not really, they're not Republicans and they're not right-leaning and they're liberty curious. And all of a sudden now in their eyes, you've got the libertarian party speaking at them in leftist terms. And they're like, right, why right. I'm trying to escape it. So I don't think that worked out very well. Um, you know, I got so much I could say about it.
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I pay attention to these things. I, I paid attention to the Gary Johnson uh, campaign. I was like, okay, maybe this is the way to go. Maybe kind of an incrementalist, almost centrist kind of approach uh, is is going to have more luck. And, and uh, you know, he did get a respectable number of votes. Um, but, you know, to me, it seems like one of the things that, that has always I found curious about um, my time at the U.S. conventions, I've been to the Washington Convention, California, a couple of national conventions, uh, is that everyone talks about winning in terms of vote count. How, how many votes can we get? How, how, like what, what's our strategy to get more votes? And that always rubbed me a little bit the wrong way, because to me, it seems like, um, look, look uh, being honest here, I don't think the Libertarian Party is ever going to win an election, at least not anytime soon. There's just not enough Libertarians out there. I mean, it, to, to win votes, I feel like you have to reflect culture, tell people what they want to hear. Amplify uh, the zeitgeist, if you will, uh, but the zeitgeist isn't libertarian at all right now, and that has all. to change before libertarians are, are going to get any votes. And by the way, if the zeitgeist changes to libertarian, guess what? All the mainstream parties are going to adopt our policies anyway, and that's a win uh, <laughs> as well. So to me, it seems like the most important thing we can do is try to shift culture by converting people to libertarianism by persuading them um, and getting them to and and pandering for votes, uh, watering down the message and pandering to special interests seems like antithetical. It seems like if you're focused on getting votes, um, your message, the libertarian message gets lost and you, you're shooting yourself in the book. What, does that resonate with you at all? Absolutely. I, I think one of the problems that we've had in the United States, especially, is that we have been reflecting the culture instead of creating the culture or being counterculture. Uh, there's a lot, you know, that is what we are. We're the Libertarian Party. We're not the sort of Republican Party, sort of left-wing party. We are our own thing, and we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. I think we've been yeah. sort of embarrassed and trying to hide who we are because we think that'll get us more votes. But even if it gets us more votes, it's not going to get us a win because pretending to be something you're not doesn't, doesn't lead to success. It just doesn't. Yeah, like where where were all those uh, libertarian voters uh, that voted for Gary Johnson uh, this past election? You know, they they kind of disappeared. So, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that I'm I'm glad you you um, you you see the same things I do because I, I'm always questioning myself because it, you know you get political operatives around you they whisper in your ear, this is how you get votes. This is what you have mm -hmm. to do. This is how, here's the script you should read off of. Um, that happens very quickly as soon as you you get in, uh, you know, win an election in, in terms of in, internally in the party. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of pressure coming at you from all sides. Um, but you, I want to shift gears a little bit. You, you are, you're a paralegal, is that right? Yes, is that's correct. How, how do you, this is something that's personally interesting to me because I, you know, our party doesn't um, have enough money to, to allow me to lead full time. I have to, I can't quit my day job. So, you know, I'm still out there uh, on the front lines as a paramedic firefighter. Um, what about you? You're a paralegal. How are you going to balance or is, is uh, LP chair a full-time position, a paid position or? It's not a paid full-time position. I anticipate that it will take up most of my time. Yeah. So 
So this is a weird neurotic thing about me. Plenty of people have done it before. I believe all of our chairs uh, in the recent past have worked pretty much full-time jobs while they've chaired the party. As someone who's worked in the legal profession for 11 plus years, I keep track of my time to the 10th of an hour. This is what I have to do. It's called billable hours. So I do this in my career. And this is going to sound insane, but I do this in my spare time as well. So every six minutes of my day is an important increment. So the average but I person feel like I have... can learn so much from you. I, I, am, <laughs> I would be embarrassed if I did that. What, what did I do? I ate uh, gummy bears for six minutes. I, yeah. uh, I procrastinated on my iPhone for about uh, two hours. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I have a timekeeper on my cell phone. Uh, it keeps track of how much time I spend on every single app. If you do something like that, your time management skills will improve. You may be full of self-loathing for the first couple of days, but that's okay. Just work through that. (laughs) And I generally have about 30 things on my daily to-do list. Uh, And I'm very meticulous. And if I don't get at least 20 of them, it's a a failed day. But that's how I keep track of time. Do Do I think I can pull it off? Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Well, and... and, um you're definitely more organized uh, than me. Uh, put me to shame here. Um, but one of the other things I'm interested in is, uh, you know, I, I've definitely experienced some worries, let's say, with my professional life, and my political life crossing mm-hmm. over and mm-hmm. saying things in the public realm that uh, might offend people, uh, where they might come after me um, privately, that's happened to me in the past. You know, I once wrote an article about um, the expropriation that was happening in downtown in my city and how they were creating a monument to central planning that Stalin would be jealous of. And uh, (laughs) they tried to fire me uh, because I also worked for the city Um, and things like that pop up all the time. What are the risks from your perspective? Are, Are you worried about any of that kind of thing drifting over to your? I'm so out in the public. If you Google me, you immediately know what I am. I still get calls from recruiters. I still get calls from attorneys. And I get a lot of people who say, you know, I I read about you. And actually, you know, I'd like to say that there's some libertarian things I agree with you on. And I think I'm mostly a libertarian. So especially in litigation, uh, attorneys usually generally are going to lean a little bit more conservatively in at least half of half, some half area of their lives. So it works out for me. I do some constitutional law too. I've been fighting against the lockdowns and lawsuits. So not too stressed right. about it. Awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's a little different in the legal realm. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm a terrible libertarian. I work for the government. I, you know, I'm a firefighter, paramedic. It's my only option here in Canada. There's no private options. I don't, we don't have a Hugh Hewitt here that uh, can right. privatize everything, unfortunately. So, so I'm kind of stuck where I'm at. Um, and they're, they're not always the most uh, amenable to libertarian messaging, shall we say. Um, okay, let's talk about lockdowns a little bit. You are in California. Uh, what, what what kind of have you guys been under lockdown or restrictions at all there? I hear things, but what, what exactly is going on? Oh, it's pretty it's pretty terrible. So Gavin Newsom is our state governor. He's one of the worst in the country. The worst are Cuomo, Whitmer, Whitmer is uh, the governor of Michigan, and Newsom, who's California. So we've got curfews enacted by him almost none of the sheriffs are complying with him by the way the county level county level government isn't abiding by it uh no more california yeah no more than three families are allowed to gather in the same place at the same time most businesses are 
forced to operate at uh, half or 25% capacity. All restaurants are closed unless they're defying the lockdown, which is great. And it is happening in some places. I could go on and on. I mean, yeah, we're under- uh, And how long has that been? How long have you been under those restrictions? On and off since March. Is that right? Well, oh, yeah. well, we are in Alberta, we're, we're under similar, uh, it's a 28 day lockdown. So uh, businesses are restricted to I think 15% capacity. Uh, you're allowed I think two families. Um, yeah, it's it's the same type of shtick here, but it, it doesn't seem like it's affecting um, the death counts and the infection rates right. all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so the lockdowns are what inspired you to run. And um, I've noticed that there there's been a dearth of of messaging, anti-lockdown messaging on the the political scene. It seems like everyone is, you know, the, even the conservatives here, they're more concerned about how the money's getting doled out or how the vaccine plan yep. is rolling out than they are about these this huge infringement on human rights. I mean, we, we have a shutdown in production at the same time we have, uh, well, in Canada, we basically have UBI now. It's uh, it's like a CERB, they call it CERB payments, but almost anyone can apply and get these uh, payments. It's like $2,000 a month or something like that. And um, I, I don't understand how we're going to pay for this, you know, how where this money's coming from. Yep. I, I see a massive wealth transfer from uh, future generations to the oligarchs that are that seem to be making out like bandits here, um, central banks. This is like an unprecedented, um, it's an unprecedented assault on our liberty and on, and on our um, finances. And no one seems to be talking about that. Why, why do you think um, mainstream parties are so scared to, to push back? I mean, I'm, surely there's got to be some people in the Republican Party or the Conservative Party here in Canada that, uh, that are willing to speak up. It doesn't seem to the- be happening. I think the people within our parties are very willing to speak up, but I think the leaders, a lot of the leaders of our parties are absolutely terrified to offend people and sound calloused or uncaring. They're very embarrassed to be libertarians right now and to talk about freedom when other people are screaming about masks and lockdowns and staying at home and how you're a grandma killer if you go out and try to make a living to provide for yourself or your family. And I think it's really shameful. I think it's, I'm very embarrassed at the lack of principled messaging in what is definitely the worst infringement of liberties on my, that's ever happened in my lifetime. I think it's reasonable to say at least since the Vietnam draft or since mm. World War II, maybe maybe even worse than that. It's really awful. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, we we have in Canada here. We have uh, kids being taken down playing hockey uh, outside. Uh, you know, and being threatened to be tased. It's just, uh, it, it's unbelievable what's happening here. And, you know, another thing that really drives me nuts on top of the, the kind of weak need politicians um, unwilling to, to speak out against this mainstream narrative is fellow healthcare workers um, crying, playing victim uh, constantly. It's like, I'm a nurse in ICU and you need to follow all these mandates and obey the government and stay isolated because I'm having a busy day at work. Yep. Well, I, I mean, look, I, I'm a firefighter paramedic. The thing that 
got me hard about this profession was the utter chaos I was going to have the opportunity to confront burning buildings, giant car wrecks, pandemics. Um, do not lock down a mic. I mean, this is this is the thing that uh, I signed up for. And, and yet here I, I feel like these my colleagues in the healthcare profession are um, are betraying the very thing that they they signed up for. I mean, we're supposed to be um, there so people can live their life and not, uh, you know, the other way around, not not cheerleading these restrictions. Uh, so that, that's been driving me nuts. Well, the, I mean, this victim mentality that is pervading uh, culture in general has been pervading healthcare uh, and emergency services for a long time. I could go on about this. I mean, we've never had more resources at our disposal in terms of the ability to manage difficult situations and emergencies. At the same time, we've never had more mental health resources available to support our mental health. And yet uh, rates of PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicide are, are skyrocketing. And, and uh, I attribute all that to the fact that all these mental health resources that are being thrown at us are, are, giving us the internal dialogue that we are victims and right. our, our very job is victimizing it us. And, you know, I have two daughters that are just starting as paramedics. Um, they're being told this and I have to constantly counter this, what they get in school and by, by their, their employers by saying, uh, look, th this is the best job you could ever get. You're going to see humanity at its best and at its worst. You're going to have the opportunity to make a difference, restore order to chaos. There's nothing that can make you a better human being and, and more resilient and more uh, capable than the job you're getting. It's not going to break down your mental health. It's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to build right. you up. Um, but that's not the, the narrative we're getting. So I think there's a bigger message here. Um, you know, that, that we're getting from from culture. I mean, we were yes. now supposed to ref view ourselves, not just as victims, but as victimizers, right? It, the, our, the act of breathing, we're, we're giant germ bags, uh, you know, it's like the original sin of the branch covidians or something like that is just existing as uh, a disease carrying <laughs> germ bag, and constantly threatening the lives of others. I don't really, I don't know exactly how this started. But I agree. And I, you know, for me in my life, my job is to go out and find the biggest burden I can carry and pick it up and carry it as far as I can. Uh, that's how I derive value from life. And I feel personal self-worth and I feel satisfaction and like I did a good job. And I feel that now people are terrified to go out and lift any kind of burden or seek out any purpose. And there is no purpose or satisfaction in victimhood. And when we glorify that, people just become lost in personal chaos and turmoil. And it doesn't, you don't, you don't progress personally. And we certainly don't progress societally. And I do think we definitely need to fight back against this, whether it's coming from mainstream media, liberal academia, um, left-wing politics, some right-wing politics too have adopted it. We definitely need to fight against it. And, and I think that that's part of what, you know, we should be doing as libertarians, as leaders of parties, but also just in our community, you know, in our jobs and in our daily lives, we got to fight back against this victimhood culture. There's, there's no freedom in slavery, safety, safety of, you know, your chains and your cell. 
creeps me out. Yeah, I agree. So you know, the, the, the Christmas, yeah, the Chris, the Christmas message I sent out, uh, you know, to people who follow our party was, uh, you know, my wife's just getting back back from New Year's Eve shift and emerge. I'm just going out from my, my Christmas Day shift in, as a paramedic. We're those healthcare workers you keep hearing about uh, in the media uh, on the front lines of this pandemic. Only you're never going to hear about us in the mainstream media because we don't see ourselves as a victim. We're super grateful to have this job. This is exactly what we signed up for. Our hearts go out to everyone who's been ruined by these lockdowns. Don't don't lock people down in our names. Um, that that's not why we're healthcare professionals. And you know we appreciate everyone that is uh, keeping our lights on, that is bringing us food, the truckers, all, all these things. Um, because I'm really concerned about this uh, victim narrative. It's it's infusing every part of our culture. Um, but okay, so you are you're you're running for USLP now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did, didn't they just elect a US? Uh, LP chair or how does that six six months ago about yeah okay and so how I long are the terms really you know a lot earlier than usual two years yeah. but what am I supposed to do while our national messaging is just right. failing and our chairman who I have nothing against personally and I will say that he is leaps and bounds better than our previous chair Nick Sarwark who I will call out personally but I can't, I just can't abide like how this is, how this is happening, how we're not speaking out against the lockdowns. And what I'm seeing also happen is that other people who are sort of interested in the party are saying, never mind. I right. thought this party was about freedom and liberty and that you guys were, you know, your messaging was going to help me achieve X, Y, Z. And now it's not. So I feel that it's my duty to step in and say, please, I'm interested in all of those things that you care about. And I am very interested in liberty and I don't care that uh, that other people might find it offensive. I will speak out against it. So I'm going to run for chair of national in 2022. Please hang in there until then. And please help me work on improving the party. That's why I have announced early. I do think it's right. really important. Yeah. And I, I guess the difference here between Canada and the US is, you know, as leader of the party up here, I'm kind of the public face of the party. I'm expected to run for prime minister and, and run for office. Um, and uh, but but I, I'm I'm guessing that you as the chair there, I mean, in between presidential candidates, you're kind of responsible for party messaging and, and the, the stuff that goes out. Is that right? That's correct. Messaging and staff. So the chair helps to populate committees. There are a lot of committees, half of them about are, are elected, you know, by people on the board and, and maybe the other half roughly are people who are appointed by the chair. The chair is technically a non-voting member, I believe, of almost every committee. So I have a lot or I would have a lot of control over what goes on on the committees. Maybe control isn't a good word. Influence, a very strong influence. And the chair also has, he has a lot of influence over who the staff is. He does a lot of the selection himself. So, you know, that's the sort of stuff that I think is really important going into a presidential election year. So if yeah. I get elected chair 2022 to 2024 and our next elections are in 24, I would like to see us, you know, get on track to have principled messaging there that will support a candidate who runs for president and also so that that candidate can feel empowered to really speak out about libertarianism and freedom against all of the, you know, insane government spending and, and, and the, you know, what's we're seeing welfare culture come to life. We've always had welfare, right? We've right. had welfare for a long time, over a hundred years, we've seen it. 
But now we're seeing welfare culture with UBI and, oh, well, you know, I'll just, I'm afraid to go to work or I have this or that condition. So I'll just be on unemployment. I'll be on disability my whole life. I'll be on this, I'll be on that. You know, oh, there's coronavirus. So I need a check. I need a stimulus payment. Yeah. We need messaging that's going to speak out against that. Absolutely. And and uh, I think you're right that the, there's never been a more opportune time, I think, for, for a receptive audience uh, to that hardcore, courageous messaging, right? Um, yes. And uh, I've definitely been inspired by what, uh, you know, the Mises Caucus is doing down there. And I kind of feel like the Mises Caucus has already taken over Canada because I basically, you know, I've been listening to Dave Smith and Tom Woods and those guys make a lot of sense to me that the strategy that they're putting forward that resonates with me that is something yeah. I can get behind and uh, you know I've been we've been putting out some pretty hardcore anti lockdown messaging up here uh, and talking about all the ways that the government is is dropping the ball you know up in Canada we also have healthcare prohibitions you know as a paramedic I'm not allowed to work for anyone but the government the state is my um, is my client, not the patient. The patient actually gets in the way of me doing my job. My job is to generate paperwork for the state. And that pa that patient is kind of an annoyance that gets in my way of me generating all the data fields I need to populate for the state. Um, and, and so, you know, I, our messaging is, is like, you need to take the chains off healthcare. I need to be able to go out there and, and provide healthcare to people. I, I, you know, I have a health household full of healthcare workers that are underemployed that could be yeah. doing a lot more and multiply that by hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers. And you can see how, you know, central banking makes us fragile. The lockdowns are, are atrocious. Um, people who work in, in nursing homes need to ensure that there's some liability for the duty they have to protect people. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of red tape, but you know, I'm not a, I'm unsure about this vaccine. I'm not a big fan of untested things. Um, but it, it turns out that the the Moderna vaccine was formulated two days after they had the genetic code for this virus, January 11th, and it was government obstacles that prevented phase three trials and, and people getting this thing, people that wanted it from getting it. We could have known a lot of information right now. This thing might have been yeah. over. I mean, there's just all sorts of ways that they go. And, and we, we've been hammering that message thanks to um, what we're seeing in the Mises caucus. Uh, and we're really excited, uh, you know, to see uh, the Mises caucus get behind someone like you who, who's uh, of the same mind. So uh, good luck in your run. And uh, hopefully, you know, we see you soon. Um, hopefully we can maybe sneak across the border and attend yes. a couple of your conventions and, uh, and press the flesh, so to speak. And, uh, you know, without, uh, without fear of, you know, uh, this killer virus that's right. out there. Um, but, uh, thank you so much, Angela, for, for sharing with us what's going on down there. And, uh, we're, we're all rooting for you up here. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Awesome.